Welcome to the How Coronavirus Saved My Life podcast. My name is Christine. I'm a mental health nurse practitioner who got coronavirus in April of 2020 and had long COVID symptoms for months. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting better until I healed myself through unwinding my childhood conditioning. This is my story on how coronavirus saved my life and how I healed myself along with others sharing their own personal stories and how they are navigating through their own healing. How Coronavirus Saved My Life, Episode 28, The Reframe. Children, model your behavior, not your words. You can give the most inspirational speech to your child. However, if you're not walking the walk, your child will observe your behaviors and most likely repeat the same. When I was a child, I was meek, mild, and quiet. When I became a teenager, my behavior showed the pain of not being able to speak my truth. My behavior showed what I was observing at home. I did not realize until recently that having sex at 14 years old was a trauma for me. I was a young girl looking to have my needs met that weren't being met at home. I was looking to have my needs met through sex, which at the time represented external connection and love that I was not getting at home. My first sexual encounter with my also 14-year-old boyfriend is what society deems as a player. He cheated on me. He gave me crabs. My first boyfriend only repeated the trauma that I was experiencing at home. I have been guilty of viewing men as disgusting, trash, and purposely hurting women if they are cheaters, have multiple girlfriends, multiple baby mamas, flirting in front of their wives, hitting on their friends. Society tells us that men should know better. Society tells us that men should be strong, the head of the family, the one we can lean on, the one who has all the answers, the one who won't hurt you, and the one who will rescue you. Then women, such as myself, become disappointed when the man does not live up to this societal conditioning. I recently began to question and reframe my own belief about society's expectation about a man, quote, being strong. I looked at my first boyfriend, who again was 14 years old like me. He had no father, a mother who worked multiple jobs, and a teenage sister who was put in an unfair position to raise him. How was he supposed to know how to be strong with no father or no mother? How was he supposed to know how to be the head of the household when he had no one modeling these behaviors for him? How was he supposed to know to have all the answers when there was no one at home showing him this? He was trying to get his needs met at 14 years old, just like me. This was the beginning of my reframe. I had a crazy childhood. I have many friends, clients, colleagues who all have had some kind of crazy childhood experience and trauma they've dealt with. Sometimes our egos like to compare whose childhood had it worse. For myself, I have always felt as if I was always the one who had it worse. My childhood experiences I share on my podcast are only about 10% of what I've been through. I've never really met anyone whose childhood compared to mine until now until I met Chris Allen. Chris Allen is a restaurant software developer and systems engineer. He's the CEO and co-founder of Advanced Computing and Technology, but his CEO title does not even begin to tell his story. 
Chris is an inspiration and a role model. He had to teach himself what it means to be strong, what it means to be head of household. He had to teach himself how to treat women and what it means to be a man. He had to teach himself through extremely tough, repeated circumstances when all the cards were stacked against him. He did this by reframing his own childhood belief. The purpose of today's episode is for the listeners to look at their own beliefs about what society tells them about men and maybe begin to reframe their own conditioned belief. Thank you, Chris, so much for coming on my show today and sharing your story. Thank you for being vulnerable and transparent and trusting my listeners with your powerful story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Before we kind of go into your story, um, when we kind of did our like pre-call episode, I when we started talking and you were just talking so freely, I just remember my body just felt this jolt because you're so transparent and direct, which is totally me. And I was, you know, you're just like, this is, this is what happened. This is, you know, the things that went on and I am the same way. It's almost like we don't warn anybody. We just say it. And right. (laughs) And I just got this jolt and I was like, I wonder if this is people's reaction when they're around me, when they hear my stories, like, you know, because there, it's just, we're, it's who we are, who, what we grew up, it's our story. And I just love that connection because it's the same thing with me. Um, can you give the listeners a little bit of background of kind of where you're from, what your occupation is, you know, how long you've been married, how many kids you have, just kind of a couple sentences. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, my name is uh, Chris Allen. I'm from Peoria, Illinois, about two hours south of Chicago. Um, went, uh, I was born there, bounced all over the country. I've been married twice. I'm in my second marriage now. We've been married for about a year and a half, but together for six years. And we have uh, a combined uh, four kids. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I will say another connection when we were talking doing our little pre-interview was um, definitely the mother connection. We have a lot of very similarities with mothers and their behaviors, but so you grew up, can you kind of describe, paint the picture for the listeners? Like when you grew up, like who, who in the household, how many siblings, brothers, sisters, was there just your mom, mother and father? Can you kind of paint the picture of, of what was going on in your household? Well, my, my household, it was, it was kind of difficult because, um, we were we were raised. It was me. I have a, I'm the middle boy out of uh, three, and uh, my I have a younger brother and an older brother. And our mom, uh, unfortunately, had been married six times, so mm-hmm. there was no uh, guidance on you know who who the father figure was at that point or anything. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I lost my father to suicide. Who uh, he killed himself when I was nine years old. So. Uh, after that, my mom continued to remarry over and over, and we never really had a true father figure until my late, I guess, teens, when one man came along, but he ended up passing away before uh, I graduated college. So uh, no structure, no guidance, no anything from sports to anything I tried to do to figure out what a man is supposed to be or supposed to do I had absolutely no clue I learned from my friends and watching them in the streets and uh I I got lucky just to be intelligent and book smart enough to and athletically enough that I was able to mask all that so nobody ever knew that I was 
you know, feigning to be a father, to know what a father really was. So, wow. So, yeah. so um, was your mom married to your dad at the time when he committed suicide? No, I, I believe she was on her third marriage at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, did your did did you have a relationship with your father? Yeah, I did. Um, I had a, I was really really close to my dad, and um, when they even when they separated, my my biggest thing I always out of the three boys, I was the only person to go back every single summer, and I would go stay with my uncle just so I can be around my dad, like in the same city of some sort. Uh, because again, when my mom got married, it just we didn't just stay in Peoria. We end up going to Colorado. We lived in Vegas. We went from Vegas back to Colorado. Uh, Peoria was just the resting spot for us. But I always came back and I stayed in connection with my dad's side of the family, which caused a rift with me and my mom in the first place, because uh, I guess I wasn't supposed to have any affiliation with him. But I I personally took it upon myself to go back every single summer, uh, even after he passed, because I wanted to figure out exactly who he was and what happened to him. And it took me 28 years to figure out exactly what happened to him. Wow, that is powerful in itself. Um, did your mom view it as a threat or something? Were you wanting to have a relationship with him? I mean, in in my heart, I believe so because there was um, there was one time that uh, my my dad and my mom they were separated, and I was at a McDonald's. Uh, we had walked up, me and my younger brother. We walked to McDonald's, and I turn around and I see this guy that looks just like me, and. I had no clue. And, you know, we were, we were staying at my aunt's house at, at this time in her basement um, in Peoria. And I see this guy. He looks just like me. And he starts talking to me. I start talking to him and I realize it's my dad. But I hadn't seen him for two or three years. And he ends up driving us back and asking us where we were, where we were staying. So he drives us back to my aunt's house. And uh, my mom, she just gets furious because... I'm I'm around my dad, I guess. And I and to this day, I still, you know, I kind of let my mom make it. And I didn't want to make it a big deal. But every time I asked to go live with my dad, stay with my dad, I felt the wrath of, of hell. And that was the hardest thing. I remember I, I literally said I wanted to go live with my dad. And uh, that's when I got <laughs> I got beat pretty, pretty bad that day. So uh, by your mom. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, that's just, uh, you know, hearing your story and just, we're just, just at the beginning is like, I, I, there's so many similarities, like with your, my mom's been married at, at least five times, you know, oh, wow. and, and, you know, every Christmas, you know, it was pretty much assured that my mom would, you know, be on the phone with my dad and then call him a motherfucker, you know, on Christmas. And, um, you know, I was always in between, you know, they would complain about each other, but, you know, to me, the child, you know, and so I always took it in as like, if my mom said, you know, your dad is an alcoholic and he's a loser, you know, I'm thinking she's talking about me. And then he's talking about, you know, what a fat bitch my mom is. And so I'm like, they're talking about me, you know, cause they're, wow. they're talking to a child like this, you know, like they're like, I'm supposed to have all the answers and, um, I was not physically abused by my mom, but there was definitely a lot of emotional um, abuse and manipulation and gaslighting and things like that. And even, I mean, I haven't talked to my mom in over uh, a year, I believe. Um, but the last words were to, for, to, from her to me was her telling me how selfish I was for grieving my dad's death. Oh, wow. 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 Whoa. That's yeah. A, yeah. That's, that's, uh, 
I'm sorry to hear that. That's because that's unfortunate and that's sad. Because I, I I've been down that road and it's not. Yeah. It's it's not the it's not pretty at all. And you just you just you're lost and you're trying to figure out how to live life and and just be a good person. But how can you be a good person with all this shit that just goes on around you? And I, I it just it turns you into a I, I I turned into a recluse. I was really, really quiet, but I was extremely, extremely aggressive with everything that I did because of everything that was happening. And and my mm-hmm. mom, like, you know, I I would see her like through these six marriages that she's even been through. I've seen her ribs broken. I've seen her jaw broken. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen my 11-year-old brother uh, beat up our stepdad, one of our stepdads, when we lived in Mississippi, and made me drive for two hours. At, and, you know, we're four years apart. So, you know, it's it's crazy that we drive all the way to another state. Nobody has a license. My mom is blacked out in the back of the car. Uh, and just three boys, and we just always knew to go back to Peoria to because that's where our family was, and they would let us stay for a little bit. And then she'll get well enough, and she'll find another dude, and then here we go. We're back on the same road. I went to eight or nine different elementary schools all across the country, and, you know, it was just always a man behind the scenes that either beat my mom or my mom, you know, she was looking for the same thing that I I looked for for years and years and years, uh, is for somebody just to love you unconditionally and you know show you what love really really was but the way that she was searching for it it damaged my childhood completely and I still don't blame her for it because I you know I know how it is to reach out and because she was rejected by her family for you know we're mixed so mm-hmm. uh, the white side of the family they went crazy for her having mixed kids and then the black side it's the same thing and and it was just a bad situation. So she had these kids, you know, at 16, 19 and 20. Like, what is she supposed to do? And we're all biracial. And now there's a rift in the family. And here we go. And that's a, that's what we had to deal with our entire lives. So, yeah, y'all had all kinds of set of problems like people might not even think about, you know, with with having, like you said, biracial um, you know, siblings and your mom, you know, and because people aren't just born like evil and terrible, you know, they, they get there some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm, I'm just, I'm tearing up, like listening to your story, like, cause your, your example, your observations of adult behaviors of love, violence, aggression, you know, uh, the, the total opposite of love um, and just, and no stability and kids like they need structure so bad. And I can imagine you were like kind of craving that too, you know, when you were a child. Yeah. I, I, I yearned for it because I, I, I had all these friends that looked like they had everything. So I would do everything in my power not to go home. I would yes. always feel stay with them because I didn't, I, I liked their life. Their life was way better than mine because we were poor or we were living with somebody else and or we're living with this guy that I've seen punch my mom in the face and I just don't want to be around it. And then I just had this mental block anyway, but I was a straight A student my entire life. And that's what I took my aggression out on because I knew physically I couldn't I couldn't hurt this guy or protect myself. But I knew one day, like if I, if I had the strength, if I was big enough, I would I would I would do what I had to do to him. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I lived like that, and I played basketball like that. Everybody will tell you that I everything that I picked up, I I went full throttle. There was no in between my entire life. Even, but it even came out in aggression because I would say things that I didn't I didn't necessarily mean, but this is what I this is the only thing that I knew mm-hmm. because 
next thing you know, I'm, I'm real quiet. And then if you approach me, you just, you know, in a, in a vulgar way, I'm, I'm 100% with it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, and I didn't want to be like that because I'm such a peaceful guy, but people don't know the, the internal demons that I fought every single day. And I still, and you know, and it took me, it took me a long, long time. And that's why some of my mishaps along the way uh, of my life now led me to this point right here, because I'm at pure peace for the first time in my life. Amen. I know exactly what you mean. I, for the first time, I feel like, like with my life, you know, I've always been trying to get out of something like get out of my mom's house, you know, uh, go live with my aunt for a bit in high school. And then, you know, I was living with my dad for a bit and then like get out of that situation and then get married a young age. And then like, it just, I'm always going and planning and going and planning to get to, to get out of whatever the chaos that I'm currently in. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I don't have a plan. I don't have anything I'm running away from. I'm like completely at peace. Man, that's, that's amazing because that's that, that's that, in my mind, I call it is it's the it's the shift. It's the mm-hmm. shift where you no longer have to you don't have anything on your back that stops you from being who you are or loving who you are or just actually liking the the person that you look at in the mirror. I do that every single morning now and life is just different because I have all the weight in the world that I carry from all the problems that I've ever experienced, it they no longer exist. And mm-hmm. it's only up to me like to bring them back up. But I, I let every I've, I've forgiven everybody. I don't have a I don't have one enemy on this earth. If I do, I don't know him. So, so. But other than that, yeah. everything is falling into place because of because I I I was able to let it go. And it took some hard, hard, hard wake up calls in order for me to get to this place. So when you so you grad so were you living with your mom when you graduated from high school? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was, and I. <laughs> I actually graduated high school in Oklahoma City. So uh, after I graduated, two days after my graduation, uh, I was at the University of Arkansas. My room was already boxed up and everything a week before I graduated. So I knew I had to go. Wow. And I I recently interviewed Melissa Lorena. She's a a podcast host and uh, a business coach and things like that and a writer for Forbes magazine. But she was raised by a mother who had bipolar and one thing that stood out for me with her was she said school equal freedom to her. She just knew that that was her ticket. Her key to freedom was school. Did you feel that same way? Absolutely. And my, and it's crazy that you said that my mom was manic depressed and bipolar as mm-hmm. well. So, and uh, the depression, I, uh, you know, suicide attempts to everything while all this stuff was happening to her. At, we've, we found pill bottles on the floor, find her unresponsive on the floor. Like, you know, it's a, we we knew that there was no scholarship. You had to go make one. You mm-hmm. had to go get straight A's. You had to go excel as athlete, like as an athlete. And that's what all three of us did. My my older brother, he ended up going to the military at 16 years old, and he signed his own. Uh, I, whatever you do to to make guardianship, mm-hmm. himself, mm-hmm. he did that. He did that, and he left. So, uh, and my younger brother, he did the same exact thing. He played football at Oklahoma, but we've experienced all this together and all three of us, we tried to stay as close as we possibly can, but there was a gap with us so much in our own house. We, all three of us, when we were all going to school, we never went to the same school together because our house was just chaos. And we were taught like, okay, we don't like you. We don't like you. We don't like you. So we would walk out the same house 
and I would go to my bus stop for my school. My brother, my other brothers, they'll go to theirs. And then we just went to rival high schools. So that rivalry, it all, it stemmed all the way back to the house. So there was no friendship. There was no camaraderie. Everybody just confused living in their own world at this time. But now I look back at it. If all three of us would have went to school together, we could have created something special, but we never did. So that's yeah, how competitive that's, it was. That's here. so interesting. Why did your mother make that decision for you guys to go to different high schools? No, it, it, she wasn't really involved in that. She, she was just, okay, well, if y'all going to school, y'all go to school. But um, I think the animosity that we we've had, we just mm-hmm. had different perspectives on things. Mm-hmm. So we just, we didn't really get along and we would always fight. I, and our fights weren't just regular, you know, punch in the stomach fight. This is a run to the kitchen, get a knife type fight. Mm. Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't like each other and there was no way I was going to go to school with him and he wasn't going to have the same, uh, friends that I have or, you know, vice versa. My friends are my friends. This is your friends. And, you know, the only only good thing that happened out of it that we were able to hide the fact that we didn't have any money because you got three people going to three different schools. So now I can wear his clothes and he can wear my clothes. So it looks like we always have something different. So nobody because nobody knew because we, we weren't at the same schools. But that, we, we, that, that we is fascinating. That is fascinating. That is so fascinating. It's, and it's almost like you guys like my thought is um, you don't know who to blame. You just know you're angry. So you're almost like blaming each other. Whose fault is it that we're going through all this stuff? It's hard to wrap your mind around like the person who's giving you shelter and food. It's their, it's their fault, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know? And so you're like blaming each other. And then it's almost like, I mean, I'm glad that I'm actually glad that y'all went to separate schools because (laughs) y'all like needed the space. You know what I mean? Yeah, we did. (laughs) Yeah, we did. And, you know the like when I when I tell you about the fights, they um probably ninety percent of them would trigger from all of us having our own issues. And next thing you know, I'll have a brother saying, uh, uh, "Fuck your dead daddy," like you know when you, mm-hmm. when you and, and here we go. And uh, my younger brother, he didn't, he still doesn't acknowledge the fact that me and him have the same dad. My older brother has a different dad, so. Anytime something would happen, it would, it would automatically go, uh, that's why your dad did. That's why your dad killed himself. And then boom. And then here we go. And it's a whole fight, full out, knock, knockout, drag out type fight. And um, we just, we definitely wouldn't. But when, when the lights came on, when it was time for us to compete against each other and we were at different schools, it would, it would headline every single paper because the Allen boys, that's all they knew. Like, okay, they're about to play against each other. And we, we would almost get into a fight on the court like because it was that competitive. And then we go back home, and then we got to fight. <laughs> so, wow, that is so fascinating. That is – so it was so – wow, it was like even the your society growing up, they, they, they were spotlighting this, this rivalry and this competition and this aggression, you know, going on. That's just so fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. So – so chaos, craziness, you know, love equals, you know, abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, not something you can trust, um, definitely not safe. So when you first started, like, you know, getting into like relationships with girls and stuff, like, what was that like for you? I mean, did, were you someone that would have a, you know, a different girlfriend all the time? Or did you have someone that you were with for a long time? Can you kind of paint a picture of what that was like for you? Um, so in, I, I would just start in high school. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, well, I lost my virginity when I was 11 years old. So, um, 
and I didn't know I didn't know what I was doing like to a point where uh I think I had to go ask somebody like how much semen does it take to get a girl pregnant like wow. I didn't I did I didn't know so mm-hmm. um but from from there um I just I pretty much I started dating on and off in in high school but I was always the super super nice guy but I was extremely emotional so mm-hmm. I just I didn't know like if somebody would have done me wrong or whatever, my reactions would have been, you know, crying in front of everybody. And then I never want to go back to that school again. So I tried to save myself the embarrassment. Mm. But, but of course I had, I had multiple girlfriends, multiple women from different schools all at the same time, but they never really knew me because they knew of what I was able to do. So me being smart and me being extremely athletic that they knew that they had somebody that they wanted to be with. And that wasn't even me. Yeah. They like put you on this pedestal that a lot of women do. I mean, myself included, like we put men, like you said, with the athlete, you because know, my, my first boyfriend, he played football, you know, and he was very popular. But meanwhile, back at his home, he's living in this tiny apartment with his mom, always working sister, raising him, no dad. I don't even know where he's at these days, but uh, we do that like it's because it's like this attraction look he's so we put him on a pedestal and then you're with you it sounded like you know if you were someone did you wrong you know that rejection like like same thing like this is rejection mm-hmm. you were you were feeling like probably came from your mom and and all the men and all that stuff going on at home you know um you know like you said getting emotional and things like that it's it's so it, and like you I thought that what, what prof- it's so profound what you just said though they didn't even really know you no, nope. They never, they, they never knew me. Uh, my wife now is the only person, o- only woman that I've ever allowed to know me completely. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I, I, I've been with countless women. I, my, I have had a six year relationship, a four year relationship. And uh, even my ex-wife, like she doesn't know me. She doesn't know me. She knew me pr- a year prior to me losing my uh, stepfather. And then next thing I know, I moved to Dallas blindly. And six months later, I'm engaged. Six months after that, I'm married. Six months after that, I have a baby on the way. And no time to know me, like nothing, no bits and pieces of me and who I am and who I was through communication, but not, I didn't even know me. And right. I, was too, I was too afraid to give somebody that. So when I, when I got married, I knew that I was making a mistake. I knew, and it, and it wasn't necessarily her fault. It was my fault for you know, being so vulnerable and and so needy to be attached to something mm-hmm. that that I guess you felt the same way. And then that's how we ended up being married in the first place. And that was that was hor- that was a horrible decision on both of our parts, because nothing that that wasn't God putting people together. That was that was being forced and and somebody leaning on somebody broken, trying to fix themselves with another person instead of getting help to actually fix themselves first. Oh my God. Amen to that. That because what that sounds like is a trauma bond. You know, we, we growing up as in our childhood, having trauma and chaos and all that are, we have dysregulated nervous systems. Mm -hmm. And so like uh, something that I've been reading kind of last year is like, you can never trust like attraction to somebody because like, if you go, Oh my God, they're so hot because it's actually your, your nervous system that's dysregulated and which it feels it's from childhood and it feels safe and it's, it's not true. It's not true at all. Um, so that is just, it sounds like y'all, y'all had this trauma bond thing and then your brain like literally produces chemicals where you're almost like addicted to each other, addicted to the chaos, addicted to the drama, you know? 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually, I will go into that in just a few minutes, but I was yep. going to ask you, so you graduated, you went to college and mm-hmm. like, what were you at the time? What, what were you wanting to like get your degree in? What were you, what was your future? Were you thinking like, this is going to, what my future is? What were your plans and goals? Well, my, my, my plans were to go to the NBA. So I mm-hmm. didn't, I, I really didn't have uh, at school. I never bought a book in college and people don't believe that I have three undergrad undergraduate degrees and I never bought one book. Um, I never missed a lecture either though, but I, I really, I got fascinated with uh, computers and technology and web design and web development and everything else that um, I was probably one of the first people to get caught on. I don't know if you remember Napster. Back yes. In the day. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was one of the, I was one of the first people that came and confiscated my, my uh, computers in my dorm room. So, uh, <laughs> so I was the extreme, extreme, pirating downloading everything uh type of person but these hobbies they didn't really equate like especially like in the black community like they no but i couldn't tell anybody what i was doing because they didn't want to hear it because it was computers and hey if you're not playing basketball we don't really want to hear that so mm-hmm. um but i bounced around a few different colleges i went to um uh small schools simpson college um is most racist school that i've ever been to that i i i dealt with some extreme racism there and then I end up uh, finishing that Iowa State so my Iowa State experience was the best experience of my life Uh, that's when I stopped basketball completely and I focused on my education and then uh, I ended up staying there and I got two degrees from there and one prior to Illinois Central so all my bouncing around this is what what I came and I knew I wanted to do something with technology and it's led me to almost 17 years later uh, that I've been in the IT space and I worked, I, I just told myself I wanted to work for the number one company in the world. And I did that. And I worked at Apple, uh, for almost five years. And after that, I just kind of took off and, uh, got into the restaurant and hospitality industry and just started developing designing for them. And I broke free from the corporate world and I've been in business for about two years now for myself. That is just amazing. And what is amazing is that didn't exactly come very easy. There was like some roadblocks, you know, along the way, um, kind of back to that, your first um, marriage. Um, mm-hmm. So I, when we talked before, you were saying this is not someone I would normally be with. I don't know why I ever even picked her, you know, those kinds of things. And But as you were telling you know, things about your mom and I saw similarities between, you know, your mom and, and this girl, which a lot of people do. They they end, in, end up in relationships because they're unconsciously trying to heal something from their mother or their father. Um, like, I mean, I, I've been known to date a few alcoholics because I was yeah. unconsciously trying to heal my father, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so how did y'all meet? Uh, and you don't have to give too, spe- too, too many specifics, but how did y'all meet? And at what point were you like, you said that you knew you shouldn't have done it, but like, at what point were you like, this is, this is not where I'm supposed to be headed. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, uh, well, we, we met, um, she, she went to college with my younger brother. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, my, my, my stepfather ended up passing away at this time uh, around that time. So this is 2010. And, um, I get this long, long, sincere message on Facebook. Mm. and I had just lost him and I was really really closed off but I was really popular at the time too so uh, I always had people around me 
like at least 10, 15 people at all times. It didn't, it didn't matter. I always had a different girl around me or something around me, but this one message, I finally opened it and I paid attention to it. And it was the most heartfelt message I ever, like I've ever mm-hmm. heard from anybody. And I read it and it was just a, just the sincerity of it made my brain flip. And I was like, Oh, I did. I, I never had anybody say these words to me. And they were just so nice about the, you know, the loss of my father and, Hey, I, I know you. I know your brother. I know your family. You guys, uh, you're going to get it together and God is with you and all this. And that intrigued me. So as soon as I got intrigued, it led to a phone conversation and I was living in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time. And, um, yeah, six months later, I end up packing up from Scottsdale and I literally moved here with no, no specific plan in mind or anything just to come be with her. And that's how I ended up here. And it was a blind move. Um, I didn't have a I didn't have an apartment, so I ended up moving in with her um, and then everything just started going so fast. But we were bringing the worst out of each other, mm-hmm. I'm talking the, the absolute worst. And I still had a past like my my past never went away because these the women that I had previous to this, though, I just kind of fell off the face of the earth. So they didn't know where I went. And I kind of went out went out in hiding to be with her because when I was with her, I didn't. You know, the phone calls and the text message, they didn't stop. Um, and by no means was I, I a good guy. But I just, you know, I was still teetering with this uh, in and out of this relationship type thing. And it, I, I knew. I knew I shouldn't have been here. And I knew I shouldn't have either wasted her time or she shouldn't have wasted my time. But I knew that I was turning into a monster like being here. Wow. So... So what it's, it's just what you said about her sending you a message. You, you heard words and emotions you've never experienced in your life and probably something you were like, this is unconsciously possibly like, this is the thing I finally have been needing and, and wanting that I never got in childhood, you know, here it is, you know, and I could see why you ran right towards that. I mean, because when you finally get the thing that you yeah, like you said, blindly, like, of course, like that would be a natural reaction is to blindly go to where someone who is offering you love and kindness. Uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, how long, like before all that went away, like, was it pretty quick? Like where the love and kindness kind of stopped or how did that look? Uh, it was, it was really quick because of the day, the day that I even landed here, my uh, grandfather passed away. So I, it it was, I, I had so many deaths. So uh, just so everybody listening that I, by the time I was 27 years old, I had lost 27 people. And these are from friends. This is from suicide. This is from uh, murders, from decapitations, from a whole bunch of stuff that I've seen and I've witnessed just in my life that I I got off the plane here in Dallas and I get a phone call saying, hey, your, your grandfather just died. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I go in and I tell her, uh, you know, I'm sitting at the pool, uh, sitting at the pool with her dad and we're just talking. He's getting to know me. And and I tell her, oh, I, I think I got to go. And she was like, oh, I can't believe you're leaving. And then my mind automatically flipped and it shut everything off. And I just said, what do you mean? I said, my grandfather just died. Well, if you leave, don't come back and all this or whatever. And I was like, whoa, I'm like, hold on. So I finally I I, I did. I kind of bypassed it. But I ended up missing my grandfather's funeral uh, because I felt obligated to to stay in texas mm-hmm. and from then i just i just had so much anger and so much built up like i just couldn't i i'm like what the hell am i doing like what am i doing here 
I, I don't even know Dallas. I don't know anybody in Texas. I'm not supposed to be here. And I stayed. And something in my heart just made me stay because it, this was a person that, like, if I go back and rewind it, this person, I, I, I was teetering with, okay, yeah, she wants the best for me or she wants this for me or whatever, but she's actually for me. And I just, I told myself that and that made me stay. Wow. Um, just you talking about all the deaths and stuff, um, mm. you know, that has happened and just, I mean, that's just trauma, P- PTSD. I'm thinking, I just, I could not even, um, imagine, you know, dealing with all of those things on top of, you know, your home life. And mm-hmm. I mean, no wonder you ran towards, towards her. I mean, that's just not, it's not violent, you know, so you think, think at the time, right. It's not like emotionally violent, physically violent, you know, it's, it's love. And then you get here and you're like, what am I doing? That's so interesting. And so, so you married, you said how, how long after y'all met? Uh, maybe it was a year. I, I got here in July. We were married the, the following July. And when you were marrying her, were you like, this is the wrong decision? Did you feel that? Uh, the night before, I, w- I went crazy. I went crazy in the house, and I, I told everybody, uh, uh, fuck everybody here. This wedding is off. And I, I literally told everybody in the house, all all my groomsmen, all her bridesmaids, everybody. And me and her were arguing in front of everybody. I just said, fuck this. I don't want to do this. I told her dad that, and, you know, I just, I, I went ballistic that night and I, I, I knew I was making a bad decision. And then even in the morning when it was time to go to the wedding, I was, I was drinking in the pool, swimming around with my friends. And then, uh, I guess it was the, the cleaning lady. She said, Oh, you got a wedding to get ready for. And I, I said, fuck you. And, you know, I just, <laughs> there was no way, there was no way, but my my boy said, hey, man, we came all this way, man. You better go marry that girl. Do this, do that. So I'm like, OK, so I'm trying to get it together. And uh, I tried to look at it as a party, but there was no there was no refuge in me like to find peace, God, love, happiness, everything that a marriage is supposed to bring. And I knew that, but I didn't want to disappoint anybody. And I wanted to give her her day. So at the same time, it was like, OK, I'm here now. Let me just go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what happened. And, and I, it didn't, it didn't clearly, it didn't last long um, because, uh, you know, temperament from each of us or whatever, but it boiled over one night, which uh, ended up almost ruining my entire life because I, I ended up being on probation for eight years after the incident that we had. Um, it was deemed an accident and it was a proven accident, but it was just, it was just bad timing, bad County, bad everything. So, and they, I think they started off with like, uh, eight years in, in prison or, or 18 years. And then it went, I got it down to eight and then I just took the eight years probation. And, um, and that's when we get into the part where I violated probation and here we go. And, and they sent me away for two years. Whew. And one, and one thing that um, I want to rewind just a minute, but because when you were telling me sort of the incident that led up with her, the things that she was saying to you, um, can you tell the listeners the things that she was calling you in front of y'all's your ch- your child? Oh yeah, it was it was a it was a full blown uh, argument and like back and forth and I and I hear oh here goes here goes your nigger dad and uh, and I just said quit fucking playing with me over and over and over again and um, 
I, I don't remember all the words that she said that night, but it was enough to get me to, uh, I just said, just leave me the fuck alone. I probably said it like 10 or 15 times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And then uh, I jump over the, I jump over across the bed and I try to snatch, I said, just give me my fucking daughter. And I snatch away, I try to snatch my child away from her and uh, my elbow ended up hitting her in the top of the eye. And uh, that's when they charged me with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. After, you know, she left, she left the house, pulled away. Uh, I go back and I lay with our, our newborn child, uh, three months old at the time. I lay back down on the couch. And then soon as soon as I lay down, maybe 30 minutes after that, they kicked the door in and uh, they charged me with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Even the cops said, that's what's wrong with you. You uh, black, black athletes, you think you can go around hitting white women. And I knew from then on it was over with. But, you know, and all in and the text message was sent, you know, uh, to all of my friends, you know, all the prominent friends that I have, too, uh, with dried up blood on her face. But, it, you know, it was sent out to everybody. And my my whole reputation was just ruined after that. And, you know, yeah. So and, so when, that, what, that was bad. and what I so I, I and I see the similarities like with you and your brothers, you know, your, your dead daddy. Like, it's like the same thing, like all of that stuff just ready to boil over and her, you know, whatever, whether hers was purposeful or whatever she was doing, like triggering that inside of you. And then, you know, you were probably, were you ever shown like how to deal with conflict in a respectful, loving way? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because she, she would, uh, she would press buttons, but this is not the, the first incident. Like I was a, I was a a wall puncher. I'll punch a hole in the wall. And then next thing you know, we got to put another picture up. Uh, that's how I got rid of my aggression because every time I felt attacked by her, I would break something, something in the house is going to get broken. I don't care if I punch uh, my hand through the TV or anything, but it, it would never be physical to her, but it would just to prove like, it's just like a, like an animalistic, like instinct, mm-hmm. like to uh, show how, how strong you are. And I'm not really not the one to be played with. So I, I I wanted to do that. So it was my intimidation by just, you know, breaking something. I'll break a plate. I'll, I'll uh, break a phone or something. Something just had to get broken just so I can be left alone. And then right. after that, you know, I would be left alone for two or three days. And then here comes the, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. Let's make this work. Boom. And then all it took was another trigger again. And I wasn't I wasn't whole in the first place. So, you know, cause I, I don't put a lot of fault on her, but it was, it was, it was the fact that I, I was just miserable and I, I just didn't know what to do next. So, yeah, and, and what also, you know, again, similarities, you were shown in, in childhood, what a strong man means, which is abusive, physical, breaking things, hurting, 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 hurting. Yeah. Yeah, fortunately, and um, that that damaged um, any any kind of relationship after that. And um, like even even with being with my wife now, uh, when I met her, I was still on probation. You know, I think I was on my fourth or fifth year on probation or something. And I I don't know what triggered this, though, but I thought she was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just I I went up to her and I said, "Hey, uh, can I talk to you?" and I end up telling this girl my entire life story. 
I mean, from top to bottom, just wow. I was like, okay, well, if I if I don't have a chance, like this is day one. I said, if I don't have a chance with you, at least I was able to tell you exactly. Like I'm not lying to you about anything. I just wanted, I broke it down all the way on day one. That is so. That is that is gonna make me cry. That is so powerful. Yeah. And I know your wife. I work with your wife. That's how we met. And um, yeah. Your wife is one of the most easiest people to ever talk to. She has this very trusting, sweet aura about her. And so I can see why, why you saw that. You saw the sweetness like this angel or something is, is what I'm picturing in my mind. And yeah. how did she react when you told her all of this? Uh, she, she really didn't. She didn't, uh, she didn't react much. She just, uh, I think it, it kind of threw her for a loop because I, I'm talking about detailed, detailed, detailed. This is within an hour. And I just said, Hey, I'll probably never see you again, but I just, I just, I have to tell you how beautiful she is. And I just got to be honest with you. This is what my situation is. This is what I have. I have a, I have a, uh, I have a little one year. I have a little two year old at the time. She's almost three and I just broke it down. And uh, we, I texted her the next morning when I didn't hear from her. And I just said, Hey, I, I just wanted to say it was an honor to meet you. And I don't do these things. I don't do that. But my persistence was, hey, would you like to go on a date? Would you like to do this? And um, she stayed. She stayed and uh, accepted me for who I am. And then she made my life a lot easier because I no longer had to live in those broken places anymore. And I was so relieved that I got a chance to to treat her right. So I, I, I made sure that I built a relationship where Hey, my phone, my phone is always going to be face up or I can be in the shower and say, Hey, can you read that last text message to me? Instead of before my phone was always down. It was some kind of hidden mm-hmm. stuff like, you know, because I wasn't living right. And this is the first person that I've ever lived right for. And it's been the most beautiful thing ever. Even when I, you know, when I went away um, for violating probation, she, she stayed, she always stayed because she knew the truth and, you know, she knew the truth about me and everybody, everything that I've ever told her and that I was able to just show her and just be me and be genuine. And even though we were misunderstood by a lot of people uh, when this when uh, I violated probation that, um, you know, she she had an opportunity to leave, but she never did. And her love has never wavered at all in any kind of circumstance that we've ever been through. So now we're just both at peace and um She's happy. I'm happy. And we keep having kids and it just, it works out and it's a beautiful thing. So. Yeah, that is, I, I, the two most cool things I love about that is that for the first time you were able to be authentic and then the second create a safe space for you to be authentic and to heal. I mean, that's just, just so beautiful. Um, I mean, right before you met her, like, were you going through a shift at the time? Were you starting to heal yourself or what was going on? Like what, I'm just curious, like, why did you do that? You know, um, honestly, honestly, it was I, I never felt like that. I, I accidentally met her because I had a friend that just lost his mom and he was looking for a place to, uh, you know, get away. And I was, I've always been that person for my friends that they can come. Hey, go, go, go holler at Chris. Go talk to Chris. He'll he'll be there for you. So he had just lost his mom and I take him to this pool party like this day party. And I promise when she walked in, the whole room just stopped. Wow. And and at this time, you know, I'm still, you know, popping mollies, going into clubs and looking for a woman to take home at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, that that's what that's what I'm I'm drinking. I'm having a good time. But everything stopped. 
I don't know how to explain it beyond that, but everything stopped when I saw her. And it got to a point where when we started talking back and forth, any any female friend or anybody I was having sex with or anything at the time, I literally called them up to a restaurant and I set them across the table from me and just told them, told them, hey, I fell in love with somebody. And this is only a week of knowing Sam. So I, I, I tell them, like, I can't, like, we can't do this anymore. Please just don't text me anymore. Don't call me. And I'm sorry. I know if I misled you. And I did that to at least eight different women that I had to, I just cut it off. And I did it behind the scenes, but I let her know, like, this is how serious I am. And, you know, I'm ready to commit to you. So, and I, and I broke some hearts along the way. And I, you know, I got some drinks flashed in my face, but I, I had to come in 100% ready for somebody of her caliber. And that's what I did. Man, our stories are so similar. It's scary. <laughs> uh, it's just so scary because like after I got divorced, um, you know, I took a whole year off from dating purposely because I knew that I was in a vulnerable state and I really, I didn't want to repeat those same like old toxic cycles and um, through like dating and stuff. It's, it's interesting because I'll meet someone and, and within a few minutes, I'm like, oh my God, they remind me of this ex-boyfriend I had in high school or whatever. And it's almost like I've had to sort of heal the boyfriends, the ex-boyfriends of the ghost past or something um, to heal that stuff, to finally get to where I am today. And the person I'm with today, who is just of a different caliber than I've ever experienced. Um, so I just, I love that you, and I love what you did, how you like set them down face to face, because that was, whether you realize that was like a healing thing that you had to do, like it built your confidence, your power, you know, and, and being able to tell these women, no, I'm not doing this. Just like, cause when you got married, you didn't want to do it because, and you didn't say no, you didn't stop it. You tried to, but you were never shown that it's okay to say no. You, it was safe to self-protect by setting boundaries. And I just love that this thing came alive in you when you met Sam and it just like get, propelled so much power and healing and stuff. Um, and you, and what's funny too, about the universe is sometimes you know, lessons that we still need to cycles and things that we haven't yet quite healed. We think we have, they, they come back and rear in its old, old ugly head again. Yeah. But it's part, but it's important for that stuff to do that because, because once you heal those cycles and those things inside of you, then the next stage of your life is just absolutely beautiful. So what I love what you said about, you know, when you said you violated probation and people had misconceptions and misunderstandings and, and didn't know, you know, why, you know, y'all stay together or whatever the reason is. Um, what was that like? Was that hard for you? When did you feel like people didn't like, did you, did you ever doubt like that she was going to stay with you? Did you feel like she was going to leave you or did you no. trust that? No, I never, I never, it, it never crossed my mind that she would leave because uh, she, she always showed like, even, even when I violated, um, she, she was there. She was there the entire time. And, you know, it's it's uh, even when I went away for two years, I got a letter every single day. Every day I would get a picture, a letter. Um, she never wavered. And then, you know, I had, a, a you know, my oldest child, um, she became friends like Sam became friends with my ex-wife. They FaceTime, they talk, they co-parent together. They raised Charlie, my oldest daughter, together. And, you know, while this is why I'm away, too. And they're, they're she's taking care of everything. They're meeting up. They're dropping everybody off and everybody's getting picked up. They're going to dinners, movies, everything together. Like 
and they're they're friends to this day. And so I'm, and I'm friends with my ex-wife now and I'm friends with her husband and everything just kind of stayed together. Nothing. And, and, uh, and I give all the credit to Sam because she didn't have to do that. And she took my child in as her own. And, you know, it's uh, we have three of our own and we have her. And, and it just it's been a beautiful thing because everybody genuinely forgives each other, loves each other. Yeah. And what, the past is the past. And everybody just, you know, that's why I'm, I'm so excited because it's just I don't know. I've never seen anything like this because there is even though, you know, I'm under a different roof than my oldest daughter. And, you know, she has her own room here and everything, too. But. Um, just to see how they co-parent together and there's no nastiness, no, there's no ugliness to it. And like, I can text my ex-wife and like, Hey, how you doing? Just checking on y'all to make sure you're good. And Sam will do the same thing. And it's just an open, good relationship. And it just makes like, we, we came together to create a, a beautiful kid and we got that and we got through the, the dirty part of life. And we made it to this point where everybody is just genuinely happy for each other and cordial and uh, i think we're even supposed to go to uh disney world this <laughs> this year in october everybody together her husband me you know every everybody just one big family wow so. that's just so crazy and it's almost like you had to go away for for all this these things to take place it's almost like your energy had to be removed somehow is, is my thought so all of these things could happen and, and all these safe spaces. And, you know, one thing that, you know, one thing I know about love that I have learned and seen is, is consistency, like having that consistency. And I love that you're being shown, you know, consistency by the, by, by a woman, you know, that you never got when you were growing up. And it's like, you're, you're changing the cycles in your family and, and starting new ones. I mean, that's really, really powerful, Chris. Like that is, Super, super powerful, super powerful. Thank you. And it's, it's a, it's a test to who she is because me going away for two years actually did it. It was the best. It sounds crazy, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I got to see the world on a whole different level of um, how society really is. And uh, you know, the minds of people incarcerated now, they just don't, 99% 99% of them they're in there because they signed a plea deal and they don't understand the law. And I just so happen to be one of them too. So I, I, I get to see like where they came from and a lot of them, similar stories. They, they were excelling at one thing and then all it takes, you know, five seconds of their life. And there's this saying that um, there's, it, there should be a lot more people incarcerated, but we're just a few that got caught, you know, that's, that's it. I mean, you got caught doing wrong and people do wrong every single day. And it's just how you bounce back from your mistakes. But while I was in, I, I actually got 152 people GEDs. Um, I, I taught classes. I did everything I possibly can uh, to hurry up and get my butt home. And uh, even now, I've, I just got done speaking at uh, the Black Contractors Association, the Regional Black Contractors Association uh, with John Wiley Price and all my giving back now. And the only only hiccup or fear that I've ever had was like oh shit I'm a convicted felon now how what do I do for work like what do I do and still the companies that I used to work for they came back and they wanted me to come back no matter what because I've never I've never broken any bond with any loyalty has never been a problem with me and I've shown that to every company that I I work for but I knew 
if I wanted to make something great that I was going to have to create this company from scratch. And, and it's been, it's been amazing. And even this year I've, I've superseded everything that I've done the year prior. So it's uh it's, it's a, it's a still a testimony to um, just to even be home and be at peace and knowing that I went through two years of the darkest times and almost died from coronavirus while I was in there. Uh, I lost 28 pounds in a week and I got it one time and then they put me in a dorm with uh, 52 people that were already positive. So every time they put one in, we go back on lockdown, lockdown. So I did this for about seven or eight months. And this is still with the fights. This is still with everything else that goes on that people don't know about. But uh, I just thank God that I, I made it home and we were able to create another beautiful kid. So, it, you know, it's just it's surreal. So. And I'm just blessed. Yeah. And I remember um, when we were talking before about um, there was a certain point, I think it was uh, the police or someone, you know, somebody in law enforcement was like, you know, basically you're going to go to pr- like you knew that your violation, your probation was violated. And then mm-hmm. there was like almost as when you were talking, telling the story, it was almost this point of like surrender where you're like, you know what? I'm going back. I mean, I'm going to, I'm, this is where I'm going. This is my destiny yep. and I'm going to make the best of it. I mean, that is just because we have many choices on how to deal with things. And especially if we've grown up in a childhood where we weren't shown those like different choices or safe choices, there's only one choice and it's the choice that your, you know, your mother or your father is going to give you, um, mm-hmm. which is usually, you know, toxic abuse, whatever it is. But um, I, I, what I loved about that is where you were like, you know, you knew you were going and it used like surrender to it. And, and then the, when you got to prison, I mean, were you immediately like, let me take action and help people. Did you have like a, t- a time where you were like depressed? I mean, oh, how yeah. did that look? <laughs> oh, I was, I was terrified. I was, mm-hmm. I was terrified because, you know, I've always been skating on thin ice though with going to prison because, mm-hmm. because imagine being on probation, like you got eight years to be perfect. In order for for this not to be on your record, you run a stop sign. That's a violation. You can get a violation for anything. You you drink before they um, you you have a, a shot the night before you have a, a piss test in the morning. You can go back. It's that easy and it's that finicky. But I was so worn out that I was done fighting it. That I didn't want to fight the system anymore because it took away so much freedom, so much livelihood. I'm paying astronomical fees that I was already ready to go. Because I was tired, I was burned out after being on probation for five years that I just said, man, you know what, I just, you know, this violation, I don't even want to fight it. But I had help going back this time. But I I knew I was going to go back, but I didn't know it was going to be on this magnitude of going back because the lawyer that I had, she can no longer practice in the entire state of Texas for what she did and her involvement because she was, you know, she she would show up to court drunk. She would drink with me after I go to court. Uh, I violated a, uh, uh, a on a, a urine test because I was drinking at her house the night before that the night before I saw my probation officer and I had to forge documents for her to say, OK, we'll present this in court and tell them I wasn't drinking. It was a burger that I had. It was a bunch of situations. But then I then I hear her say uh, she's really close friends with the, the D.A. that I'm even fighting against anyway. And I said, you know what, man, this is bad this is bad. So we fire her. And then I go get another attorney. He walks in day one. He said, Hey, uh, Hey, I got it down to three years with your behavior. You can go, you, you'll go in. I said, go where? He was like, Oh, you're going to prison. 
I said, nope, no ifs, ands, or buts. He said, nope, you at least got to do four months and six days, and that's how you can get out on parole. You'd rather be on parole than probation. So I thought I was going to go in uh, for four months, six days, be home, and we all prepared for that, but it turned into two years because they denied my first one because I didn't have enough time in the system. So, so that's how I literally had to sit there. But, no, I was terrified out of my mind. And um, I started lifting weights, and I got up to almost 230 pounds and trying to fight everybody to to prove myself like the first five or six months. And uh, when I got tired of fighting, I, I, I went to the hole for 45 days, and something just shifted after that. Like when I got out, I, and it was so crazy, I got out on the Easter Sunday, and um, they put me back in general population, and I just, um, I was just a different person because I had time. They only give you a Bible in there, and I got really, really close to God. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have anything else. You don't have any, no commissary. You don't have anything else. It's just you, a Bible, and they give you a, a pencil and a piece of paper. And I read the Bible maybe three or four times in 45 days, and I just sat there. And I prayed on it, prayed on it. And then when I got out, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And that's when I went to the schoolhouse and I immediately got hired. And uh, the principal that even hired me, he was one of my best men in my, in me and uh, Samantha's wedding. So it, it turned into something bigger than what, what I was actually doing in my mind, because I had to be able to accept that shift that God was placing in my heart. So and I did it and I came out the most peaceful and, you know, I see things different and nothing, nothing bothers me anymore. Like it used to like absolutely nothing. I'm just so, at, so at peace and just calm. And I don't even think anybody can ruffle my feathers at this point. I don't care what they do. Uh, it just, it just won't work anymore because I don't live there anymore. Mm-hmm. So. That is just one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard. I just, that is just, that's just so incredibly powerful and moving and touching. And that peace that you found during that time is, is it's not worth trading anything else for. I mean, that peace is like the peace that I have now too is, is nothing I would trade for anything in this world um, because we had to go find that for ourselves. Nobody taught us that we had to go find that for our own selves and how beautiful is that we can finally like enjoy our lives and one thing is like with all of that turmoil and chaos and things like that and then finding the peace it's like you know we're all worthy we are all worthy simply because we exist you know nobody is less worthy than the other person and how beautiful it is to finally like sit in that your own worthiness and your own peace because that's where love and connection is too you know Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing, and I and I and I wouldn't wish prison on anybody, but I do wish everybody has this this isolation time just to be one hundred percent honest, because you can't you can't bullshit your way through prison. You can't. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be transparent, open, because you will get exposed in there. But it's up to you just to hey, just who who are you? You get to reinvent yourself. You get to you know, come clean with all the, the stupid shit that you can think about in your life that like, I, I thought I, I was like, man, I, I could have went to prison probably 50 times. Any all the mistakes that I've made in my life, if I would have just got caught then or if I would have got in trouble then or anything. But, you know, the the lies that I used to tell, the manipulation that I used to do, I used to hang around weak people when I had money 
Uh, I used to hang around uh, women that I knew didn't have any morals because of who I was and who I knew. And, you know, it was just a status thing that I was taking advantage of. I wasn't a good person. I, I wasn't living right. But that that piece of, of being isolated and then you have to be 100 percent real with yourself, it will break you completely down. And then you build back up, but you you build back up totally different because you don't you, you don't live there anymore. You don't see things the same way. And and if you do see things the same way, you you know where the mistake is going to happen preemptively before it even can ever get to that point. I mean, all of that is so powerfully true. I mean, that's when I had coronavirus. I mean, that's when my shift began, because when you're alone in quarantine and you can't you don't have access to those things, those comforts that you normally have access to and you're all alone, you can't be touched, you can't get a hug. Um, you can't be around people. You can't go do your thing. You're absolutely alone in your room. And then on top of that, you think you're going to die. I mean, that is just, uh, it, shit gets real, you know, when that goes on. And that's why I named this podcast, How Coronavirus Saved My Life, because it is absolutely true during that time and still continue. I mean, that's where I met God. That's where I met consciousness. That's where I met the love. That's where I met the peace in that fear, in that panic, in that mortality, that's where I met myself. And that is just so beautiful that the same similar situation happened to you where you had to be alone. That is so true that being alone, you can't lie to yourself. You can lie to yourself in many different ways, but when you're alone and you just have a Bible and a pencil and a piece of paper, um, I mean, there's choices that you can make during that situation, but Finding yourself and finding your peace is the biggest gift that you can ever give yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I'm, I'm just, I'm beyond grateful for the experience because now I can, I can take this and I'm, I'm using my platform now to actually speak. I, I actually have to go to Austin to uh, speak at the house of representatives uh, to their reform program that they have. And because they, they've offered me a guest speaker spot again and I just spoke at a second chance graduation and um seeing these people uh and understanding it it's it's more to it just having that you know convicted felon tag it's it's those are probably one of the most fragile people on earth but one of the most hard-working people because what they have what they've endured to even try back to give society a shot to go get a job or anything like that. I I've hired two of them already because I know their livelihood is on the line and they, they work 10 times harder because of where they've been and they don't want to go back. But if they don't have any help, they don't have any guidance. They just don't know. They don't know what to do, but to see somebody actually give them a second chance and third chance, fourth chance, it doesn't matter that they, they come with the same energy every single day because they just want to be a good person and want somebody to, you know, love them the way that I wanted to be loved my entire life until I met my wife. So it, it, it balanced out and it's just it, it all comes full circle because I'm, I'm going to be speaking at the same place that granted me parole in Austin at the pardons and parole, too. So, you know, just to to go back and thank them people because they don't they don't understand sitting me down for two years was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I can look them in the face and explain to them why. And this is not for any kind of expungement that I'm asking for, but it's it's for the fact that, hey, if y'all didn't sit me down, some something else would have happened to me. So it was it was you know, it worked. It works out. 
uh, 100% when you just isolate and you accept your punishment for everything that you did on purpose, accident, it doesn't matter, but you can, you can't bullshit yourself. Just go ahead and take it. And then you just turn into the best version that you ever can possibly be and just keep working every single day and just be, just be a good soul to people and everything else will fall into place. Man, you're, you are just speaking my vibration right now. I have a really good friend from childhood. Um, he was in prison. He's half Hispanic, half white. And I bring that up because he was bullied a lot for being Hispanic and things like that. But, you know, he was basically told, you know, when he was a kid, you're going to end up in prison just like your father. So that legacy sort of continued. But, you know, we've had conversations where, you know, he was in prison for 12 years and he said finding a job was the hardest thing because no one wanted to hire you. And then on top of that, not pay you very well. And so he has rebuilt that reframe that for him. He just kept working hard. Like you said, they're the hardest working people. That is so absolutely true because he has worked so hard to where he's at today. Like, I mean, him and his wife are building this huge house and he's like, you know, the top dog at whatever company he works at and is about to start his own company. And I mean, it just for someone just giving him a chance and being able to prove his worth, like over and over was such a gift for him. And I, I love that this is something that you're going to touch upon when you go down and talk to those people in Austin. I mean, whatever I can do to help with that, let me know, because that is, that is, that is where, because when you grow up in a, in a house where you don't know your worth or you're not told your worth and people in front of you don't know their own worth and you have to reframe that, rebuild that, uh, for your, for your life. And just to have one person to help you with that is just, is a gift. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it really is. And I, I, I would love to I, I'll talk to you more about it, uh, about what their their initiative and what they want to do. And uh, there's a program called Oasis here in Dallas, too, um, that I'll be partnering with them uh, to find job placement for them for uh, the labor that I need done and for the programming. And if you work 80 hours with me, I you actually qualify to get your uh, CCNA. So that's your Cisco Certified Network Administration. Uh, certificate and that job alone you know you can come out the gate from 120 to 150 thousand dollars no matter what you are because you know it's Dallas is a tech tech city so you can do you can do whatever you need to do but I I plan on after this experience that I've had uh, and being home two years now it's just I'm, I'm ready now I'm, I'm at a point where I gotta go change lives and save people and do it do as much as I can because I don't want them to remotely end up where I was mentally physically um it just I don't I don't want that on anybody else and now I can see the signs before somebody actually makes that decision and try to help them before it gets to that point I I just love that that is just so beautiful well thank you Chris so much for sharing your story um I'm gonna be thinking about so many things the rest of the day and through the weekend (laughs) like I, I feel like this might not be our last conversation because I have so many questions and so many things, profound things that you've said, you know, through this, this episode, uh, I have to go, go, go be alone and think about all this stuff. Um, <laughs> I just, I appreciate you being vulnerable and I appreciate that you reframed like what it means to be a man for you and your family, because that is, like I said, you, you healing cycles and starting new ones. I mean, that is just like so beautiful for, for, for you to reframe that for you. Cause we, we think that society thinks that men should just know and that they're born just knowing, and it's so not even true, not even close to the truth. So I appreciate you so much. Tell Sam, thank you for letting you um, come on my show and borrowing you for a minute. 
um, I thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you too. I I definitely appreciate you, and your story is amazing too. So uh, I, I'm definitely going to keep tuning into your podcast, and I'd love to do another one with you for sure. I cannot wait. Thank you so much, Chris. You have a great day. All right, you too. Okay. Thank you to all the listeners of How Coronavirus Saved My Life podcast. If you want to know more about me and hear crazy family stories, hop on over to the podcast I make with my sister. It's called The Family Burrito. My sister, Jessie, and I made the podcast after our dad died in March of 2021. We did it as a way to heal our childhood wounds. Now we are healing and now we're having a good time. So if you want to hear more stories, crazy sense of humor, and get to know my personality a little bit better, hop on over to The Family Burrito anywhere you get your podcast streaming.